Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Stocks mostly higher, but well off their best levels of the day as the major averages try to gain back some of the ground lost earlier in the week. The most important hour of trading starts now. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Sarah Eisen uh, today. Let's get straight to the market dashboard, showing you the S&P 500 really trying to hang tough in August, uh, staying above the 4,100 mark. Just to rewind, up almost 19 percent if you take intraday low to high from June up to last week's high. Pull back about 4 percent of that. Uh, there's been these intraday rallies each day. Some traction happening alongside the 10-year Treasury yield being above 3 percent, as well as the dollar index staying near its highs and oil firm. So it seems as if uh, these markets are being held in check, but stocks are actually maybe outperforming what you might expect them to do, given those other factors. Take a look at small cap stocks, which are an outperformer today, up about three quarters of a percent relative to high yield debt, the high yield ETF, and then longer term investment grade bonds. You see uh, the uh, iShares HYG, that's the high yield debt proxy, has more or less gone in sync with smaller cap stocks, which are consumers of riskier credit on some level. This is a one-year chart. You see they've come back in sync. And this rally here in high yield relative to safer, longer term debt is significant. It shows you a little bit less stress in the system, although, of course, still down on a year-to-date basis, still had some spreads widening out. So that seems to be the setup right now, obviously going into that Jackson Hole conference with a lot of these macro uh, inputs uh, also filtering into the equation, including including from housing. Let's get to uh, this morning's new news, uh, pending home sales fell 1% from June to July, down nearly 20% from a year ago, according to the National Association of Realtors. That was slightly better than what analysts expected. Meantime, prices down about three quarters of a percent from June to July. That is the biggest drop in 11 years, according to Black Knight. Joining us now to discuss is Gina Curro, head of agency MBS Research at Bank of America Global Research, and John Lavallo, senior home building analyst at UBS. Uh, good to have you both here. Gina, love to start kind of from a top-down view through the lens of mortgage finance. We've seen uh, a pretty steep retrenchment in just the number of new home sales, uh, the amount of housing turnover. And now we're seeing a bit of a price response. Affordability became very challenging. Does this mean we're in for another down leg in housing or are there signs of some kind of stability or equilibrium emerging here? Yeah, so thank you. Great question. The rise in mortgage rates that we've seen year to date has just had such a strong impact. And if you think about what that's done, it's really, um, it's essentially raised the average mortgage payment about $500. Um, We are now seeing that. First, you saw it in the home sales declines, which are down about six consecutive months. Um, And only until recently have you started to see it in price action. So, you know, it feels like price action is lagging a little bit. Um, But, you know, we think we're on track to see home prices up 10 to 15 percent this year and potentially up, you know, maybe two to five percent next year. And what's going to drive that push higher in prices more broadly? I mean, is it still the old, you know, demographic story, the supply demand being favorable? Or you think mortgage rates are going to come down uh, in order to make them more affordable at higher prices? 
Yeah, a, a little of both. Um, you know, I think we still are generally light in inventory. So sure, inventory is increasing, but the way we see inventory increasing is really, we look at month supply as um, a fraction of what home sales are doing. So when home sales are on a slower pace, what that means is there's more supply in the market. It's not that you're necessarily seeing all these extra units hit the market. Um, and then also, yeah, we think that it's possible to see, you know, to end the year around a four and a quarter mortgage rate, and that should help somewhat. Yeah, that would obviously be uh, a good deal off the, the, the recent highs. John, uh, you've been pretty upbeat about the prospects for some of the home builders. We've gotten Toll Brothers uh, results in the last 24 hours yeah. or so. How does that fit into your view? I mean, the stocks still remain under uh, some pressure well off their highs, though uh, not really uh, declining too much on the, the latest fresh batch of data. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, I think I would agree with uh, you know your points and also what Gina was saying. Look, I think that the data has been bad. And by definition, the data has to be bad in order to form a bottom, which is exactly what we think is happening. Now, what was the most interesting takeaway from the Toll Brothers call was that they, they said that August was actually seasonally better than it should have been, right? It was actually up 25% for uh, their non-binding contracts versus July. So, look, I mean, I'm not saying that we're out of the woods yet, but it does feel like we're starting to form some kind of base here. Um, now, that's pretty consistent with our own channel checks, the most recent of which was in the Carolinas, which the, the brokers that we spoke with on the ground uh, were pleasantly surprised with what they saw in August. But more importantly, the buyer traffic that's coming in now seems to be more qualified, more engaged, and they believe it sets the stage for some kind of recovery in September. We'll see to the extent that that happens, but the bottom line is that things aren't quite as bad um, you know, as, as the market initially anticipated in our view. And is Toll Brothers, uh, John, an exception because of where it sits, you know, within the industry with a somewhat higher price level, a different uh, customer base? No, it's, it's a really good question, right, right Mike? And it's a debate. Some people would say, you know, you go with it with the higher end buyer because they're better, you know, financially healed. 20% um, of Toll's buyers pay cash, so arguably less you know, uh, affected by interest rates. But I think you can look at the other side of the equation, too, and say, well, you know what? That first-time entry-level buyer is a very need-based buyer that's driven by life events, you know, marriage, children, and so forth. And to the extent that they can buy a home, they are going to buy a home. So if that means moving a little further away from the city center, sure. If that means uh, buying a smaller footprint, sure. So we would actually favor the, the, the kind of the lower-end, entry-level, first-time need-based buyer in times like today. Gina, how does the outlook for what the Fed has left to do in terms of tightening rates, even in terms of letting its balance sheet shrink in part by letting mortgage-backed securities roll off, how does that feed into what you do expect in terms of where mortgage rates are going to settle uh, and whether you know, demand is going to remain pretty healthy next year in, in uh, housing? Sure. So um, the Fed has probably been the number one driver of mortgage rates this year, and all the increase in rate um, that we've seen to date is really in anticipation of what will they do. And, you know, I think in June was around when rates saw a local peak just north of 6%. That, um, that started to reverse when investors felt more comfortable that the Fed really had a grapple on inflation. And I think most recently with the minutes that were out last week, we got, we, we felt very, you know, 
convicted that the Fed was ready to do whatever it needed to do to combat inflation. And then that started anticipating that rates could rise a little bit further. And that's why you saw this slight sell off. So, you know, I think as long as the Fed doesn't surprise, which is obviously very challenging in this environment with volatility so high. But when the Fed does kind of surprise and people are anticipating a more hawkish move, rates are likely to increase, spreads are likely to widen. Um, They do have a pretty substantial MBS balance sheet. It's about $2.7 trillion, but that is, you know, in the runoff process. And um, right now, that is the scenario that's baked in. John, uh, what are the builders saying about their pricing uh, plans? I mean, Gina just talked about the chance that, you know, uh, prices in general go up, but are they having to moderate their, uh, their pricing at all? some extent, yes. I mean, incentive activity has absolutely sort of normalized off of, you know, virtually no incentives over the past couple of years. Um, I think that, you know, what they're really kind of focusing on are things that help on the closing front. So whether it's rate locks or, you know, buying down points, things of that nature, just to kind of get folks over the edge. I would say, though, that we're still very much in check on, on the incentive activity. And what Toll mentioned today, what, what was interesting is that the buyer just really froze in June and July. And there was no sense even having incentives because the demand was was so inelastic. Now they're starting to feel there's a little bit of elasticity coming back in, which is really encouraging. They can bump up incentives to some extent, um, still keeping them very low and get that buyer response that, yeah. they, that they're, they're targeting. All right. We'll see if that happens, if uh, consumer sentiment maybe uh, lifts off the mat as well. John, uh, Gina, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Now, representatives for Twitter and Elon Musk meeting in court this afternoon for a hearing surrounding Musk's bid to buy the company. Up next, the highlights from that hearing and how this week's bombshell whistleblower allegations factor in. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Let's check out today's stealth mover. It's Frontier Airlines. That stock is flying higher by more than 3% after Morgan Stanley resumed coverage with an overweight rating and a price target of $20. With the proposed Spirit Airlines merger in the rearview mirror, the analyst says Frontier, as an independent company, is the quintessential ultra-low-cost carrier thanks to its low fares, low cost structure, and attractive margins. That stock up 3.6%. On the day, Bed Bath and Beyond getting a boost today on a report from the Wall Street Journal saying it has found a lender to shore up liquidity. The stock is still sharply lower in the past week, though, following news that Ryan Cohen had sold his stake. Courtney Reagan joins us with the latest on the struggling retail. Hey, Court. 
Hi, Mike. I know you follow this one pretty closely, and the moves are enough to give investors and all the rest of us whiplash. So today, the news that Bed Bath & Beyond has a new source of liquidity is pushing shares to their best day since just August 16th. The Wall Street Journal reports the troubled home goods retailer has selected a lender to pad cash levels and potentially pay debt, though who and how much isn't known. In its most recent quarter, the retailer had $107.5 million in cash. That's down from $1.1 billion the year prior. And sales, which of course is the primary source of cash flow, those are falling with total revenue down 25% in a year. Again, according to that most recent quarter, $1.4 billion in long-term debt. Now, reports have suggested that Bed Bath & Beyond vendors have been reluctant to ship goods for fear of not getting paid, knowing how low those cash levels are. The retailer does have an interim CEO after its transformation efforts and push to private label really failed to gain traction, along with, of course, external supply chain snarls and then other company missteps. Mike, we've reached out to Bed Bath & Beyond for clarification on the reports about the vendor reluctance and about the potential of a lender, but have not gotten word back yet from the company. Yeah, so obviously so many things not specifically known, such as if there is a lending agreement, what the terms might be and how that, I guess, sets up Bed Bath & Beyond financially down the road. But just in terms of the strategy from here, aside from having the liquidity to, you know, get vendors uh, shipping things to them, what do you think uh, Bed Bath is in a position to do? Are they aggressively shrinking the number of stores? Uh, have they been, done a, a bigger rethink of exactly how they're going to be approaching this market when they are kind of in shrink mode? Yeah, so very interesting, Mike. They had done sort of a lot of the big stuff, like the the culling down of the stores and selling off different brands under CEO Mark Tritton, who is no longer there. And so what they had been doing was really changing around the merchandise, bringing in new private label brands. So brands that Bed Bath & Beyond were developing and building all on their own and then putting them in stores for sale, stores that had been newly redone that were kept. So all of that was sort of either done or largely done when this big transition happened. And so right now we're really waiting to see who's going to lead the company in the longer term and what will that strategy be? Are they still going to push into private label? What's interesting is Triton actually had a very good track record for private label at Target before this. And investors, when he was brought in, were very excited about what he might be able to bring in terms specifically of private label. But in my personal opinion, I think it is possible to look at this, hindsight is 2020, and say, look, he probably did too much too fast and at a time when retail was very dramatically changing and during a pandemic, which none of us could have seen was coming. For sure. Uh, it's kind of amazing. It's still about an $800 million market cap at Bath & Beyond uh, right now uh, on a pretty big uh, sales base. We'll see what happens there. Court, thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Let's check on the markets here. We have a little bit of a lift uh, in the last uh, 20 minutes or so. S&P 500 about four-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ outperforming just a little bit. As I mentioned, Russell 2000 small caps up nearly 1%. Still ahead, SoFi shares moving higher as President Biden announces his student debt forgiveness plan. A top analyst will tell us uh, uh, that he thinks, it, whether he thinks that is positive news for shareholders. And as we head to a break, check out some of today's top search tickers on CNBC.com. The 10-year yield holding the, that top spot, followed by Peloton, Tesla, Bed Bath & Beyond, and WTI Crew. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast. 
generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Markets are uh, in slight rally mode. We have the Dow up more than 100 points here. It's been uh, hovering above the flat line for most of the day after a little bit of a morning dip. S&P 500 uh, up about four-tenths of 1% as well. Uh, We do also want to take a look at the Twitter back and forth. Representatives for Twitter and Elon Musk meeting in court this afternoon, just one day after a whistleblower complaint raised new questions about privacy and security at the company. David Faber has been following the developments closely, closely, joins us now on the news line. So, David, what what did we hear? I guess lawyers for both sides were, uh, I guess, uh, giving some indication of the the points that they may press. Yeah. um, You know, Mike, going in, before the whistleblower complaint yesterday, we had an expectation this would be uh, about um, Musk asking for more data, specifically to support his case that bots on the platform are far more than 5%, and Twitter would be pushing back, uh, essentially trying to make this much more about, hey, Musk has got to prove fraud, which, of course, they think is going to be extremely hard to prove. Then we thought things might change, that today might be a different hearing given uh, the explosive allegations in that whistleblower complaint that we received yesterday. But frankly, it ended up being kind of what we'd expected prior to that. Um, while Mr. Zatko uh, was mentioned a number of times uh, by, by Musk's legal counsel, Alex Byro, uh, it wasn't the center of this hearing at all. There was no new sort of counterclaim or attempt for, an account, you know, for paving the way for a counterclaim of some kind, including this line of inquiry. Uh, it was much more about back to the basic case, which was we want to try to prove that Bots are greater than 5%. We need a lot more data in order to do that and a lot of things that we don't think we got and we've asked for. And Twitter trying to make it about, no, that's not what this case is about. It's about proving a material adverse effect, which they're not going to be able to. So, you know, and Mike, in many ways, I think those listening and even with a more sophisticated perhaps take than I have, who I've hopefully talked to, that there wasn't that much brought to the table that was new. Interesting. Now, I mean, suppose that might reflect to some degree the fact that the whistleblower complaint, while somewhat explosive and maybe damning about how the company was managed and some security issues, it didn't necessarily uh, get specifically at that 5%, you know, monetizable daily active user figure or anything like that, that that seems to be at the crux of Musk's case. It didn't. You're right. Um, And in fact, some might even say because of that, it's more supportive than not. Uh, it was, you know, much more, as you say, about security and security flaws, uh, a lack of focus there at the company. But that doesn't mean that at some point down the road, Mike, we aren't going to see the Musk legal team sort of try to bring that in and focus on it to some extent. But they didn't do it in this hearing, yeah. at least not to, great, to a great extent. Uh, we'll see what the judge rules. Uh, you know, again, there had been some expectation, perhaps, that because of, of that go, you'd see a lot more time given to depositions, to subpoenas, to all sorts of different things, and therefore even the possibility that the trial would be delayed. We'll see what she rules. She didn't rule from the bench, so we are awaiting her uh, whatever it is that she will decide in terms of allowing for more uh, data that uh, Musk wants. But again, uh, back to the issue of bots, which really this was about largely at this hearing, um, you know, not much new really from both sides. Obviously a lot of back yeah. and forth as you might expect. 
Yeah, uh, interesting. I mean, certainly it would raise the noise level of a trial just having this new information, but uh, the market seems like it also feels it didn't necessarily get uh, too much of a fresh take there. David, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Sure Talk thing. to you soon. All right, natural gas prices are on the rise again today. They are up double digits on the month. After the break, we'll talk to RBC's Halima Croft, who says natural gas is the most important story to watch right now in the energy space. Natural gas prices hitting their highest level since 2008 this week. The move comes as Europe deals with soaring prices as a result of Russia cutting off flows. For more on the volatility in that gas, let's bring in Halima Croft from RBC Capital Markets. And Halima, every single day, a new record uh, for European natural gas prices. It seems there's a rush for them to you know, fill up uh, what they can in terms of storage, preparing for the winter. What's priced into this market? What do we have to brace for? I mean, I think we have to brace for clearly further Russian disruptions. I mean, the Russians have already signaled that they are going to shut down the all-important Nord Stream 1 pipeline for several days at the end of this month. I think we just have to brace for rolling Russian cutoffs as we head into winter. Russia does not want Europe to fill storage. Russia wants to make this extremely painful for Europe because Europe is set to impose very tough sanctions on Russia on December 5th with essentially embargoing Russian oil that would go into Europe, putting a whole host of other sanctions that would make it difficult for Russia to move their oil into other markets in Asia. I think the Russians are deeply concerned about these sanctions. Gas is their weapon of choice. They don't earn nearly as much money on gas exports as they do on oil. So they are going to play the gas card going into winter to make this awful for Europe. There has been some talk. I mean, obviously, Europe is trying to prepare as it can, one, by rationing uh, consumption, uh, presumably, but also perhaps switching to the degree possible, whether that is to things like heating oil. I mean, are all those things factors in the rest of the energy complex at this point? I mean, absolutely. I mean, what we're seeing is, you know, the IEA actually increased their oil demand forecast because they're looking at a situation where countries are going to have to burn, you know, more oil for power generation. But we're also seeing, you know, countries saying we're going to bring back hard coal. So this is a real situation that will affect the entire energy complex. And again, you know, I think the Russians really want to be playing this essential mutual assured destruction strategy with Europe. You go forward with these sanctions that will hurt our bottom line, that will go after our key engines of revenue, and we're going to have to make you choose between heating and eating. They really want to make this a very politically painful choice for European leaders. Right. And it would be. And of course, uh, many, many expectations that it will certainly mean recession uh, in Europe one way or another. And then just more broadly uh, on the crude oil story, we have the, the Saudi comments recently about the possibility of cutting back on production at the same time, maybe some progress with Iran. How does that net out? I mean, this is going to be a really important story to watch. I mean, the Iranians, they now have the deal. The United States made their comments. They sent them back to Tehran. This comes down to a question of, is a supreme leader willing to sign on the dotted line? I mean, one thing that the Iranians wanted was guarantees that whatever sanctions relief that would be provided would survive, you know, past January 2025. The White House cannot provide those guarantees. So it's going to come down to, is a supreme leader going to walk his nuclear program back from the brink of weapons capability to take a deal that gives him essentially two years of sanctions relief? If the deal is done, you can expect more Iranian oil to start hitting the market in a couple months' time. 
And that leads to the question about what will the Saudis do? The Saudi oil minister was out this week talking about a potential production cut because of the volatility in the market, lack of liquidity. We certainly think that the return of Iranian barrels would be a qualifying event for OPEC to start talking about production cuts again. And it was interesting to hear the, the comments that, you know, inflation-adjusted oil is cheap or adjusted for other commodity prices uh, relative to their own histories. Oil's not high uh, at this point. I wonder if that's just uh, essentially feeding all in the same direction, preparing for uh, some more production discipline. I mean, if you want to see the energy market that is really having, you know, in warp speed in terms of prices, I mean, again, this is a natural gas store. I mean, yes, Oil is hovering at that $100 Brent mark, but just look at what we started this segment talking about. Look at what is happening in natural gas. I mean, that is where we're really seeing these extraordinary high levels. And again, the real, real economic contractions, that's coming because of natural gas. Yeah, and we know about even the wear and tear on uh, people's ability to pay electric bills here in this country. Halima, thank you very much for running through it all with us. Thank you for having me. All right, here's where we stand in the market. Still solidly higher, uh, though moderated gains in the S&P up a bit more than a third of 1%, S&P 500, and then the Dow up a quarter of a percent. The Russell still outperforming uh, NASDAQ up six-tenths of 1%. After the break, it is prime time for Peloton, the bike maker kicking into high gear today after news of a partnership with Amazon. We'll talk to the CNBC reporter who broke that story next. And you can listen to Closing Bell on the go by following uh, the Closing Bell podcast on your favorite podcast app. What's Wall Street buzzing about today? Peloton, those shares surging after CNBC.com's Lauren Thomas reported the company will shift gears in its selling strategy. Consumers will now be able to buy Peloton products, including the original bike, on Amazon. It is the first partnership with another retailer, and the company tells CNBC to look to other retailers for similar deals. Lauren Thomas joins us now to discuss uh, really a strategic shift. Lauren, what is behind it? What's the calculus on the part of Peloton? Definitely. So this is really big news in and of itself because Peloton was started as a direct-to-consumer business. You know, it has this D2C core where up until now it has relied primarily on its own website and its own stores to sell its products. Now the company, of course, has been through a massive shakeup this year. It got a new CEO in Barry McCarthy who had stints at Spotify and Netflix. And this is someone who is very interested in the subscription aspect of Peloton more so than the hardware. So you've seen Peloton already in, in just a few months that Barry McCarthy has been CEO. It's gotten out of the production business. It shifted that to third parties. It's gotten out of last mile uh, delivery and now is relying on third parties such as XBO Logistics or FedEx. And with this announcement today, Day, we're now seeing Peloton take a step in retail to rely on Amazon to, to sell its goods. So clearly, you know, this company is still looking to grow its base. Peloton has about 7 million members today. Barry McCarthy has said he wants to hit 100 million members. So certainly still has a long way to go if it were to achieve those goals. But it believes that retail partnerships are really going to be key to that moving forward. 
Well, and it is interesting because while it is such a departure, the idea that he is so focused on the subscription business means that Peloton would retain a relationship with the customer. Uh, there is still that kind of ability to retain and, and, and sell through things along that lines if you don't think the hardware is the main thing. The other piece of this, and I've heard you uh, talk and write about this, which is uh, Peloton, customers already searching for Peloton products on Amazon. There seems to be this ready-made known level of demand, people looking for it there. Can Amazon also look to other brands? Presumably, this is an advantage Amazon has in terms of trying to create partnerships. They can see what people search for on the platform. If some vendor or some brand is not yet selling on there, I assume they can say, why wouldn't you come in and cut a deal with us? Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to, to point out and remember, just a, a few months ago, really, there were rumors swirling that Amazon was interested in actually acquiring Peloton, right? And obviously, those talks didn't bear fruit. Peloton has not been acquired. But, you know, when you see the, the market cap fall, it was at early 2021, uh, closer to $50 billion. And certainly with the stock price up a bit today, it's it's up a bit, but around the $4 billion mark now. So, you know, there were certainly some businesses, I think, at, at a point in time that had an interest or wanted to explore Peloton as, as an acquisition opportunity. But to your point, you know, Amazon, it recently announced it was going to acquire the robot, iRoomba robot maker, you know, and that was a big data play. This is a company that's very interested in learning about consumers. And now with this Peloton partnership, I think they'll get a much better sense of just what the American sum- consumer is thinking about in terms of fitness and health and wellness. For sure, uh, through its advertising business, uh, helped by that as well. Lauren, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, talk to you again soon. SoFi getting a lift today on the Biden administration's student debt announcement. We'll, t- uh, we'll uh, get to an analyst about the news, what the news could mean for the lender. That story plus a preview of NVIDIA, Salesforce, and Snowflake earnings when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. Samir Samana from Wells Fargo Investment Institute is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day. Plus, Mizuho's Dan Dolev on SoFi's pop and Needham's uh, Raj Gill on NVIDIA. Uh, Let's talk, uh, Samir, uh, in terms of the markets as a whole, they've been acting as if in the last couple of months, let's say, uh, there's a perhaps higher perceived probability we get some kind of soft landing, that maybe uh, recession isn't a foregone conclusion, or at least that earnings are going to hold up. You seem as if you're a little skeptical of that view. You think that we still have uh, a little bit of a tough road ahead economically? We are. I mean, you know, look, there's just too many supply dislocations that the Fed just can't control, which are going to keep a little bit of a bid under inflation. And so, you know, can they get inflation down from eight to, you know, four or five percent? Sure. But if they're pretty resolute on getting it down to two, they're going to have to go into a much more restrictive territory than the market is currently pricing. And that's the part that we think is underappreciated. Once that flows through to multiples, um, especially on earnings that should decline as those rate hikes make their way through the economy, it's just going to be a tough time, you know, going anywhere down. I wonder how what we might hear over the next couple of days from uh, Jay Powell in Jackson Hole is going to affect that, because there's some sense out there that as soon as we have a couple of months of declining inflation, given already what's been done on the tightening side, the lagged effect uh, of that on the economy, maybe there's a sense out there that some uh, equilibrium point might be not too far in the future. 
Yeah, look, I think all of our work suggests that wages tend to lead other types of inflation, and especially the stickier types of inflation. And so if you've still got wages growing you know, well into the 5% range, that's the tricky part for the Fed right now, is that will eventually put upward pressure on things like rent and those stickier components of inflation, even if the headline comes down. All right, let's get to SoFi. That stock getting a pop today. It's off its highs, but still up more than 3%. President Biden announcing last hour the federal government is canceling $10,000 in student debt for some borrowers, likely to affect some 40 million loans in total. Joining us now for more is Mizuho's Dan Dolev covers SoFi. Dan, uh, first, just talk about the, the general implications of this move in conjunction with the fact that the moratorium on paying interest on student loans is going to end at the end of this year. How does that run up against SoFi's business? Hey, Mike, thanks for having me on the show. Look, this, this has been a huge drag on the stock, and we're so happy to see that drag go away because it kept, you know, for the last two years, we've been hearing, you know, it keeps getting extended, extended, extended. And what, what ends up happening is when, you know, there's finally clarity about this, then you're going to get um, you know, a big wave of refinancing, and that's how SoFi makes money, right? In 2019, it accounted for about 60% of volume, 6-0. It's down to 20% now in the first half. So if you get that... It's a refinancing boom again. Now that you have that, you know, the moratorium clarity uh, ending, uh, I think it's going to be great for SoFi. So that that's how it kind of plays into the SoFi story. So the elimination of student loan balances based on the forgiveness of this $10,000 is not going to offset that at all. In other words, people won't have as many uh, as loan balances to refinance if that happens. It's only about, I think, about 50 percent. So remember, there's a, the, the benchmark is 125,000. So it's only about 50 percent or so of their book is below 125,000 of, of income. And the average loan balance is about 70,000. So you still need to refinance your remaining loans. Plus, the people that have uh, higher incomes now have clarity that they're not going to get a pass anymore. And that might create them to basically stop you know, kicking the can down the road and refinance again. We've seen this in the fourth quarter of uh, last year, when people thought that the moratorium was going to end, you saw a huge boom in refinancing. I expect to see the same thing in the fourth quarter. It's happening sooner and it's happening bigger than what we thought before. And that's why we're saying, you know, Biden is forgiving. Don't forget to buy SoFi. And then just bottom line, clearly it's not the only driver of SoFi's business, but how else is it situated? Here we are with about a $6 billion market cap on the company right now. It's, it's well down from, you know, the, the highs of a year and a half ago or something like that as people rethink maybe, you know, the model and what to pay for it and whether profitability is going to be nearby. I think this is a great time for SoFi because, remember, in an environment where interest rates are rising, SoFi is a huge advantage. They're lending like a bank, right? They're lending with their own balance sheet and they get a better cost of capital. So they can make a bigger spread when others are having trouble, right? We're, we've been in this environment where lending is, is, is a problem. But SoFi, because it's got the cachet of a fintech, it's got a huge brand and you know, great management and it lends like a bank. It's got sort of the best of both worlds or the best of all worlds. And, you know, we're getting more and more calls from investors who are interested in SoFi these days because it's very, very uniquely positioned. Plus, there's more liquidity with SoftBank selling. So it's sort of like that perfect environment or perfect weather for, for people to get back into SoFi. Well, we'll see if uh, if fintech is still something that has cachet, I guess, uh, over time. But, uh, Samir, let me just ask you quickly, in terms of the macro implications, if any, of the student loan forgiveness, some people say it might drive more consumer inflation, others that are just refresh, you know, household balance sheets. Is, is there really uh, a play in this from the macro side? 
you know, it probably does, you know, kind of put a little bit of, you know, confidence back in the, in the consumer's mindset, right? I mean, there's been a lot of things that have kind of weighed on it, whether it be, you know, wages, whether it be gas prices. I mean, this is definitely something that should ease some of the pressure on the lower end of the consumption, you know, brackets. And if anything, you know, it, it feeds back into that conversation from earlier about making the Fed's job a little bit harder because now you're, you're getting consumers feeling better again. Right. Yeah, there is a push-pull for sure. Uh, uh, Dan, and thank you very much. We'll, uh, we'll catch you again soon, I'm sure. We have two big software stocks reporting second quarter results in just a few minutes, both in the green today and part of the summer bounce over the last few months. Snowflake up 23 percent, Salesforce up 15 percent, both since mid-June. Frank Holland joins us now for more. And Frank, uh, what will investors be watching in particular when Salesforce reports? Well, when it comes to Salesforce, revenues are forecast to increase by 21%, but EPS to decline by 31%. The big question for this quarter is operating margin. In Q1, Salesforce reported almost 18% operating margin and then guided 20% operating margin for the full year. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers, but follow with me here. But Salesforce did not guide for operating margin this quarter. The street's looking for over 18%, and there are a lot of questions about how the company will expand margins for the full year. CEO Mark Benioff says results are also deeply impacted by the strong dollar last quarter and is guiding for a $200 million hit due to currency in this report. Salesforce gets about a third of revenue outside of the America. So some questions there about the dollar impact and how that is going to impact margins. For sure. Uh, definitely been a headwind. And Frank, what uh, should we watch out of Snowflake? Well, investors, analysts, they all want to see growth that justifies the sky-high valuation of, the, of this data as a stock excuse me, data as a service stock, which is now trading at more than 1,000 times forward earnings. So revenues forecast increased by 71%, but EPS estimates have a loss of a penny. So just pick a metric. Remaining performance obligations RPO is forecast to increase by 84% to 2.76 billion. That would be in line with the growth from Q1. Estimates also have customers growing by 35% to over 6,700. Beats in either of these or AAR would signal a strong pipeline of business and real growth during an uncertain macro time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, clearly very, very strong long-term growth expectations in Snowflake. We'll see if any of them uh, really prove uh, justified by these current numbers. Now, Samir, I wonder just as a, as a category of stock, these somewhat higher growth, uh, very well-regarded business models in software, is it a part of the market that you think can come back that, you know, Salesforce down 40% off its high, uh, Snowflake, I think, off 60%? You know, what we would say is there's probably parts of tech that can play pretty well. Um, you know, we like larger cap tech. It's, it's a sector that we favor. But I would say smaller cap growth companies, smaller cap software companies, non-earning um, smaller cap growth companies probably are pretty vulnerable. It's interesting because they've been one of the market leaders since that mid-June bottom. Um, you can throw biotech in there. That's maybe the poster child for the rally that we've seen since mid-June. We'd probably be fading those types of companies. I think they'll have a pretty difficult time as those financial conditions tighten and it becomes a little bit harder for those high cash burn companies to, to borrow to continue to fund that growth. Yeah. And, and Frank, um, you know, in terms of Salesforce, Mark Benioff, he always has a pretty upbeat longer term story to tell. He's been doing it for whatever, decade and a half or something like that as a, as a public company. Uh, sometimes the street listens. What's the street uh, kind of view of, of this stock at the moment? Well, right now, obviously, everybody knows that Salesforce is going to have strong revenues, has a great customer base. 
The real question is about its profitability long-term. There's FX headwinds. There's also margin questions. Um, Salesforce, like a lot of other uh, you know, uh, cloud stocks, is also impacted by rising interest rates. So that could be another potential headwind long-term. Um, all quarter, as we've seen the 10-year rise, we've seen stocks like Salesforce and other companies that are at the top of the stack when it comes to cloud names really get hit hard by those higher interest rates. With rates increasing, that's something to watch for this company long-term, at least for the rest of this fiscal year. Yeah, that was that certainly was uh, or has been one of the, the pressure points. Frank, thanks very much. Uh, we'll catch you after the, uh, the numbers are out. And don't miss the CEOs of both Salesforce and Snowflake on Mad Money with Jim Cramer. That is tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern time. NVIDIA shares, meantime, in the green today and up about 7% since the company's last earnings report. Our next guest says this may be a kitchen sink quarter for the chip maker. Joining us is Raji Gill, Managing Director of Semiconductor Equity Research at Needham. And uh, he has a buy rating on NVIDIA with a 185 uh, price target. So we're hoping uh, for a kitchen sink quarter. What would that entail specifically in terms of what NVIDIA says about the outlook, do you think, Raji? I mean, we're hoping, we're certainly hoping for a, a kitchen sink. I think, um, you know, what Micron uh, spooked us a little bit because uh, when they cut numbers, uh, we, th- we thought they kitchen sinked it, but then they went out ahead uh, subsequently and, and lowered numbers further. Um, I, I think there is going to be some continued risk uh, to the October guide uh, as uh, Ethereum moves to proof of stake. Uh, the demand for, for miners goes away, so there's still a fallout uh, from that. That'll impact for gaming business. Um, China and Europe are still a very large percentage of their, their gaming market. Um, both markets are, are the economies are, are weak there. So um, we're hoping that the October guide will be a kind of a reset. Um, we're also paying very close attention to both gross margins as well as data center. Um, on the data center front, um, on the pre-announcement, data center growth grew only about 2% sequentially, and it, it decelerated on a year-over-year basis. Data center is the principal growth driver of the company. Uh, so uh, we re- really need to see that uh, that business is, is not slowing down uh, in a meaningful way. And then uh, additionally, on the gross margin, they, they took a $1.3 billion charge uh, inventory charge, their gross margins uh, were around 46%. This is versus 67%. They, they clearly took the inventory charge um, to, and, and took the hit initially. Uh, we want to have a better understanding of, of what are the normalized gross margins coming out of this inventory correction uh, with gaming. What are those normalized margins going to look like uh, once we uh, clear out this inventory? That's, those are going to be yeah. very important. You mentioned the transition in Ether to proof of stake, and, and uh, you know, you categorize that as, you know, in the gaming uh, segment. I mean, I think there's a little bit of, there's a, there's a crossover here, right? It's the gaming uh, products, the chips that are used for those purposes. What about, though, the end demand for personal gaming and things like that itself? Have we seen a trough? Well, we're, I don't think we're out of the woods yet um, with respect to gaming, core gaming, X the Ethereum mining. Uh, and, and, and it's really uh, due to a couple of reasons. I think China is about 25%, represents 25% of their installed base of, of GeForce gamers around the world. The, the Chinese economy continues to be very weak. All our conversations with companies that sell into China indicate that the Chinese economy is not recovering anytime soon. There's a housing crisis. Um, there's, there's multiple issues. So the China consumer, um, uh, it, we think, is still in, has some, some challenges. 
I think secondly, uh, Europe is also a, a big percentage of their of their gaming market, the European economy. So we really need to see that those two markets have have started to, to slow down. The the mm -hmm. pricing uh, um, pricing has fallen pretty dramatically for Nvidia. What Nvidia can get for its uh, gaming GPUs, say a year ago, a year ago they used to get two to three times MSRPs. That the, the pricing now has fallen as more supply has come in. Right. Uh, right. So. Uh, the pricing of GPUs has come in. So uh, I think we're not out of the woods yet in terms of gaming. Uh, a lot okay, of that is yeah. understood by the street. I think the main issue is really data center. Got it. Um, all right, we'll see uh, how the numbers come through. You got a 185 price target, pretty modest upside to where it is trading right now. Raji, thank you very much. Thank you. Samir, final thoughts here. It seems like you're, you're advising investors not to fight a Fed that's going to have to be a bit more aggressive than now, than now anticipated. Yeah, well, we would say it's be dynamic, right? So, you know, if we're talking, you know, in mid-June and we're, you know, sitting with 36 handle on the S&P, you know, at that point, we, we like large cap stocks. We want people to, to kind of add exposure. You know, here, closer to, you know, 42, 4,300, like we saw last week, this is the time to be kind of pulling back on those lower quality areas. And probably our favorite area continues to be energy. You know, that still continues to price oil and kind of the... 60s or 70s as opposed to the hundreds where it's trading there's just too much skepticism there so that's probably a really good uh, you know area to, to continue to you know kind of up the exposure and you say you know down at the 3600 area in the s p you would have advised adding and liking large caps you expect that low to hold we do you know again just yeah. given the fact that interest rates seem like they're well behaved it seems like you know things should start to moderate next year so if we do overshoot that i mean we would think it would be uh, probably a generational opportunity Interesting. Okay, yeah, that's some uh, some way to benchmark uh, everyone's expectations, if nothing else. Would be a pretty big drop from here, though, to go to those lows again, um, 12 or so percent. Uh, Samir, great to have you today. Thank you very much. As we head into the close, uh, moderated gains a little bit. The Dow is only up about 67 points. That's about two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 up about 0.3% uh, here. We're kind of hanging steady in, uh, in August on a month-to-date basis. Uh, the S&P 500 is actually up about a half a percent, even as it's about 4% below its highs. Uh, we, uh, we have uh, the Russell 2000 continuing uh, to outperform up about 1%. Uh, that could be as uh, the dollar rises and people get a little more comfortable about perhaps the resiliency of the domestic economy. Meanwhile, the 10-year Treasury yield still above 3%. A lot of the same pressure areas on stocks remain. 3% Treasury yield, strong dollar. And, of course, we await the Fed conference in Jackson Hole coming over the next couple of days. That does it for Closing Bell. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.